Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to OSEAMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. It's September 2001 and America is reeling. Al-Qaeda has struck and thousands are dead. The country scrambles to respond, but the Pentagon has no plan for Afghanistan, the country where Osama bin Laden masterminded the 9-11 attacks. To make it worse, he's protected by the Taliban. It's here that the CIA steps forward with a plan to spearhead the war. I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast, and I'm joined by Toby Harnden, the Orwell Prize-winning author and former foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times. Toby has been tracking this CIA operation, and for the first time, he reveals how eight officers were dropped into the mountains of northern Afghanistan on October 17th, 2001, just a few weeks after the attacks. Codenamed Team Alpha, this eclectic band of linguistics, tribal experts and elite warriors were the first Americans to operate inside Taliban territory, with their primary mission being to track down Al-Qaeda and to stop the terrorists from infiltrating the United States once again. Were they successful? Well, you're about to find out. Here is Toby Harnden on the first operation in Afghanistan. Hi, Toby. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, James. Great to be with you. I'm well, thanks. Good to hear. Now, you are a foreign correspondent, a journalist who has reported on war and terrorism from 33 countries around the world. You've even been imprisoned for keeping your sources confidential. But this is perhaps arguably your biggest story. First casualty, the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 9-11. So take us back over 20 years now to September 2001. 9-11 had just taken place. Political leaders in the Pentagon were still deciding how and where to respond. But the CIA was already in action. What was their immediate reaction to the attacks of 9-11? Well, on the day itself, I mean, the CIA believed, I think with some justification, that may well have been a target. So Kofa Black, the counterterrorism centre director, who was the man that sort of oversaw these early months of the war, he was kind of the man of the hour in CIA quarters. So they've got kind of a number of things going on. First of all, they might be hit. There was United Flight 93, which was in the air and ended up being brought down by those brave passengers in a field in Pennsylvania. The Pentagon had been hit, the World Trade Center had been hit, both towers. So they're worried about that. They're also thinking, how could this have happened? How could we have not 
known this. I mean, they knew in principle that the United States was going to get hit. And Kofa Black, along with people like Rich Blee, who was the head of Alex Station and Bin Laden unit within the counterterrorism center, had been almost literally jumping up and down and banging the table throughout 2000 and into 2001 with the Clinton administration and then the Bush administration. So they're very much focused on the present, on the day. Are they going to be hit? And so there's an evacuation. And Mike Spann, who was a young 32-year-old CIA paramilitary, former Marine Corps officer, he was in headquarters that day. And he was furious because he was one of the people who was evacuated, non-essential personnel. He was not the personality who believed he was non-essential. And he was like, what are we doing? We're the CIA. We do things. You know, we don't go home. And of course, you know, Mike Spann would go on to be one of the eight members of Team Alpha, and, and he was the eponymous first casualty who was killed on November the 25th, 2001, the first American combat casualty. But as well as the day itself and the prospect of potentially being hit and trying to sort of work out what was going on, as we all were doing, I mean, I was a reporter in downtown Washington, D.C. that day, and looking back, and I've spoken to Coco Black about this extensively, he already knew there's going to be congressional inquiries and he's going to be raising his hand, swearing to tell the whole truth and all the rest of it. But of course, they're thinking about what does this mean? The world's completely changed. And what does this mean? And how is the United States going to deal with it? And as you say, the CIA had a plan, or maybe a plan is a bit too elaborate a word to use, more like sort of a concept. So taking a step back, the CIA had been deeply involved in Afghanistan in the 1980s, fighting the Soviets or helping the Mujahideen fight the Soviets. It's a Cold War proxy battle. And the CIA in the United States had won. And there was a two-word cable which declared, we won. (laughs) A famous agency cable. And a lot of times they weren't able to say that, including very recently. But at the end of the Soviet occupation in 1989, United States policymakers, and to a large extent, the CIA turned away from Afghanistan. It was no longer viewed as strategically relevant. It was a Cold War conflict, and the Soviet Union was then on its knees and subsequently collapsed. But as with so many parts of the world, the CIA always sort of has a presence and always has an interest for that sort of day like 9-11 that may come. So there was a small cadre of CIA officers who didn't lose touch with Afghanistan. And then you had a couple of very significant developments in the 1990s that changed the picture completely and led to the CIA reconnecting in a practical, concrete way with Afghanistan in the late 1990s. So you had the emergence of the Taliban in Afghanistan, and more importantly, in terms of United States interests, you had Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda moving from Sudan in 1996 to Afghanistan and seeking sanctuary under the Taliban. And then you had Al-Qaeda declaring war on America and hitting American targets. So two American embassies in East Africa in the summer of 1998, the USS Cole in Yemen in October 2000 with a suicide bomb and increasing warnings of not only American targets, but America itself being hit. And so from 1998, you had the CIA increasingly saying, like, we need to get at Al-Qaeda. We want to kill bin Laden. We want to go after him. Clinton administration, there's still a debate about this today, but certainly the Kofa Black 
and George Tenet, the CIA director, you know, that they did not have the authorization to kill Bin Laden. Otherwise, they would have been very happy to try to do it. And in hindsight, which is that wonderful thing, missed opportunities to get Bin Laden. But from 1998, there were CIA missions into Afghanistan, usually via Tajikistan, into the Panjshir Valley. And David Tyson, a CIA case officer, former academic at Indiana University, a specialist in Central Asian studies, gifted linguist who spoke Uzbek and Dari and lots of other languages from the region. He was one of the men on those missions which were codenamed Jawbreaker. And they were designed to re-establish ties with Ahmed Shah Massoud, who was the ethnic Tajik leader of the Northern Alliance, which was the resistance against the Taliban. And the United States and the CIA was interested in him because he was fighting the Taliban. He provided a potential route to get to Al-Qaeda. And there was a lot of agitation from within the agency and some parts of the National Security Council in both the Clinton administration and then the new Bush administration, which came into power in January 2001, to actually be more active in going after Al-Qaeda. But the policymakers sort of in both parties, the United States government, did not see Al-Qaeda as a priority, despite the warnings from the CIA and others. And so there's a document called the Blue Sky Memo, which originated from the CIA and was then sort of drawn up in the National Security Council in sort of December 2000, January 2001, so straddling the two administrations, which kind of laid out this concept of helping the indigenous resistance to get to Al-Qaeda. And so on 9-11, that's immediately in Kofa Black's mind. And in the days after 9-11, he is briefing the president in the Situation Room and then at Camp David about what the United States can do to get into Afghanistan, to get after Al-Qaeda, to maybe get bin Laden, gain intelligence about what had happened and to stop this happening again. And remarkably, General Tommy Franks was the Central Command commander. General Hugh Shelton was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs who was just about to retire. And U.S. military was sort of caught flat-footed. I mean, they reputedly have a plan for absolutely everything, you know, up to and including the invasion of Canada, but they didn't have a plan for invading Afghanistan or taking significant military action against Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan in 2001, which is just extraordinary. And Donald Rumsfeld, then Pentagon Secretary, was a very sort of type A personality, extremely frustrated by this, what he saw the kind of leaden-footed nature of the US military. And he was kind of embarrassed that the CIA, which is by orders of magnitude smaller organization, did have a plan. And the plan was basically for small numbers of Americans, in total hundreds of Americans, not the 100,000 troops we got a decade later, to be inserted into Afghanistan, principally in the north at the beginning, because that's where the Northern Alliance had its strongholds. And these were ethnic Tajiks, Uzbeks, Hazaras, Turkmens, so the sort of the non-Pashtun elements of Afghan society, which made up a majority, even though the Pashtuns were and remain the largest ethnic group. And so the idea was for Americans to classic sort of SOE, Special Operations Executive, OSS, Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner of the CIA and the Green Berets, sort of concept of small teams going in, working with the indigenous allies, the indigenous resistance to the Taliban against the foreign invaders who were not the Americans. I mean, my argument is always that there was no American invasion until 2002. 
the foreign invaders who were the Arabs of Al-Qaeda. And so that was the concept. And the first CIA team to go into the country was Jawbreaker, so the same code name as the previous missions, and they again went into the Panjshir Valley. But that was controlled by the Northern Alliance, so it was, relatively speaking, safe territory. Ahmed Shah Massoud had been assassinated by al-Qaeda on September the 9th, but the Northern Alliance military leadership was in the Panjshir Valley. So it was kind of like a command post that was set up there. And then it also soon transpired that the Tajiks, some confusion after Massoud being killed, didn't really want to fight or didn't really want to fight quickly. And they wanted the Americans to sort of do a lot of it for them. And so Team Alpha, the first of the so-called alphabet teams, was inserted into the Dariusuf Valley south of Masri Sharif, which was the northern city, on October the 17th, 2001. I was going to ask what date this was, because when we start to look at the timeline of this, I know that the first drone strike to try and kill Mullah Omar was October 7th. And then, of course, you have the introduction of more of an air power campaign. But at this time, you're saying that what we have is by 17th, there are already American troops on the ground, these special operation forces ready to go in and to start this mission of Team Alpha. Yeah, so you had Jawbreaker went out. You had on September the 26th, and they were inserted by a CIA MI-17 helicopter on September the 26th. You had a base, Kashi Karnabad, usually referred to as K-2, because it's a mouthful, an old Soviet air base in Uzbekistan, which the Uzbek government, Karimov government, allowed the US to operate from. So you've got US forces massing at K-2 in Uzbekistan, north of Afghanistan, ready to insert. And you had sort of two groups of people. You had the CIA, a lot of them paramilitaries, but by no means all of them. So in Team Alpha, there were four paramilitaries, two case officers, a Green Beret officer and a medic. And then alongside them, you had ODAs, Operational Detachments Alpha. So 12 men, Green Beret teams led by a captain. And they worked sort of hand in hand. And there was lots of sort of wrangling about how exactly this should happen because everything was very improvised and there was a real determination, not just from President Bush and the Bush administration, but from the American public to get in there and do something. It was just not the kind of political atmosphere where you could wait months before doing something. So in the end, Team Alpha went in first. So they went in three days before ODA 595, which became famously known as the Horse Soldiers. And so Team Alpha were the pathfinders for the special forces to kind of set up established links with Abdul Rashid Dostum, who was the ethnic Uzbek warlord, and sort of prepare the way for the actual military to come in. And then the third crucial element militarily was US air power. So as you mentioned, the military operations from the air began on October the 7th. Not too many Taliban targets because, you know, they didn't have much military infrastructure. But the ability of the Green Berets to call in airstrikes using U.S. Air Force combat controllers who became embedded with the teams, that was the thing that transformed the military equation and led to the collapse of the Taliban militarily. And interestingly for me, 
That's kind of modus operandi that is incredibly familiar to how Western forces deploy force around the world today as part of the global war on terror. And so perhaps something we can return to is whether or not that was a mould to which Western forces learnt from in terms of its successes and applied it later on. But to take us back into this history here, first of all, thank you so much because I've always wondered why it was the CIA teams that were able to go in there first to have that spearhead. Because straight after 9-11 you must have had so many other parts of the US intelligence and military structure just vying to get their teeth into this there was money being pumped in from left right and centre but the simple answer is is that the team that the CIA were able to put together were incredibly experienced and they were the special forces of the special forces here so take us into what their actual aim was what was their mission what were they set out there to achieve yeah and the other factor is the CIA institutionally was prepared to take on more risk. So the US military, they wanted combat search and rescue in place before Green Berets went in. And the CIA was like, if we go down, we're probably dead anyway. There is no exfil route and we don't care where we're going in. So the CIA mission was incredibly straightforward, really, and would occupy a sentence or two, which was to go into Afghanistan to establish links with the indigenous allies and advise them to fight, coordinate with US military. So the ones who were coordinating the tactical military piece with the Green Berets, and the people who were doing the fighting were principally not Americans at all, but were the horsemen, cavalry of Abdul Rashid Dostum, and hit the Tajik warlord in the area, Atta Mohammed Noor. So it was an Afghan fight. And the CIA mission, it wasn't even to topple the Taliban, although that quickly became seen as sort of a necessary piece in all this, but it was to get out after Al-Qaeda. So it was to bring the perpetrators of 9-11 to justice insofar as you could by killing or capturing them. It was to gain intelligence about what had happened on 9-11, and it was to prevent future attacks and to deny Al-Qaeda sanctuary in Afghanistan. And that was it. So you'll notice what's not there, which is to establish... A nation state in Afghanistan built on Jeffersonian ideals of democracy or any of that stuff, which came in afterwards. So take us into the details about the dynamics of both sides. You mentioned Abdul Rashid Dostum. How many forces does he have in this? How many forces in total have we got of these American special operations CIA forces that are in there? And how many are they facing in terms of Taliban and Al-Qaeda? Because I'm not sure, did they know themselves the scale of the fight that was to come? So they didn't. So Team Alpha really dropping into the unknown. So they arrive in two Black Hawk helicopters, flown by the Night Stalkers Special Operations Aviation Regiment, which was established initially after the disaster with the 1980 Iranian hostage rescue attempt. And the DCI officers just don't know what they're going to face. So two of them, J.R. Seeger, who was the chief, was a Dari-speaking case officer who'd worked with the Mujahideen against the Soviets in the 1980s. And you had David Tyson, who was the Uzbek-speaking case officer. So they've got a lot of regional expertise. But amongst the rest of them, four of them are paramilitaries. Mike Spam was a paramilitary. There's a guy called Scott Spellmeyer, who was a young guy, 33 years old, but had been wounded in the Black Hawk Down in the Battle of Mogadishu in 1993. So he had some combat experience. Alex Hernandez, who was 49 years old, he was retired Sergeant Major Special Forces who joined the agency as paramilitary. A guy called Andy, who's still serving in the CIA's pretty senior position now. 
he was a special forces reservist new to the agency. There was a medic called Mark Rausenberger who died in 2016 in the Philippines on CIA duty. He was a former army medic. And you had Justin Sapp, who was a 29-year-old Green Beret captain who still serving now as a colonel based at the UN in New York. So you have this kind of eclectic bunch of people and they just don't know what they're going to face, including JR and David, who are Afghan specialists. They do have a sense that Dostum is going to work with them. He's a warlord from central casting. I interviewed him in Shebagan in Jiaozhan province in 2020. 68, 69 years old now. Well-justified reputation for, you know, having hands sort of soaked in blood. Notorious for switching sides. A human rights record that has prevented him ever visiting the United States, you know, in the last two decades. But he was the guy in 2001 because it was an assessment from David Tyson, who he hadn't spoken to Dostum before 9-11, but he'd been working with the Uzbek intelligence service on the sort of Afghan portfolio and a big part of that was what the makeup of forces was in terms of Dostum's Uzbeks in the north. And so it's all on who was a fighter and who wasn't. So on paper, you know, Dostum had about 3,000 fighters by his own account available. But momentum is everything in war. And CIA went in with $3 million in non-sequential $100 bills in a big Pelican case. And Dostum got a million as soon as Team Alpha landed. But that money was to encourage Taliban forces to switch sides and obviously killing lots of them took them off the battlefield but also encouraged others to switch sides because that's the sort of nature of war in Afghanistan but they're massively outnumbered so very hard to tell even now but tens of thousands of Taliban troops in the north against several thousand northern alliance forces but as I said what changed the equation was US air power so up until that point Dostum had been defeated in Mazar-e Sharif in 1998. The Taliban forces were about to launch a major offensive on the Panjshir Valley, and it looked like Massoud's forces might be sort of snuffed out there and could be a complete Taliban control of the country. Ironically enough, if 9-11 hadn't have happened, the Northern Alliance probably would have been routed in Afghanistan and Taliban would have been in complete control. So it was a very uncertain picture and one of the incredible things about this period, again, having sort of spent quite a lot of time in Afghanistan and knowing how things worked, obviously it's happened in Vietnam as well, decisions that could have been made sort of on the ground or sort of company level or battalion level went right up to sort of politicians and very, very high level approval was needed for tactical operations. In 2001, it was incredibly flat. So the amount of sort of latitude that was given for decision-making was just incredible. So J.R. Seeger, Team Alpha Chief, Gary Schroen, the Jawbreaker Chief, they were speaking to Hank Crumpton, who was the sort of deputy to Kofa Black, who'd been tasked with running the war sort of day-to-day. So they set up a new unit within CTCSO, Counterterrorism Center slash Special Operations. And so that was the day-to-day running of the war, and they would speak to him. But I interviewed Hank Crumpton and... So 19 times out of 20, he was going with what they recommended on the ground. Occasionally, there'd be a question of resources, whether they should go to sort of jawbreak or team alpha or one of the other teams. But really, it was down to these guys on the ground, which was sort of incredible. You know, talk about the weight of a nation on the shoulders of, in case of team alpha, just eight men. 
your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday, but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at us at the hotel. And I have never seen anything like it in my life. Imagine being used as a human shield, put in the line of fire. We're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not leave where you are. That man has been shot. He has been shot. My God. Listen to the secret history of Flight 149 to hear the shocking story behind one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history. We know the truth. We know what actually happened. I was there. Subscribe now. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It sounds like this coalition of convenience is making good ground, whether that's by air power and coercing people to surrender and perhaps change sides, or by good old-fashioned bribery and money making people change sides. But this starts to change pretty quickly, doesn't it? Is it fair to say that they're lured into a bit of a trap? Yes. So this formula, it took a little bit of time to work out. So, for instance, ODA 595 initially didn't have the US Air Force combat controllers with them. They were calling in airstrikes themselves and Dostum was getting frustrated, wasn't quite sort of working. So these sort of staff sergeants were flown into specialist US Air Force special forces air controllers. Are they all on horseback at this point? 
Is that how they're all getting around? Yes. So in the mountains up to the capture of Masri Sharif, which was November 10th, 2001. So Team Alpha, ODA 595 and ODA 534, which linked up with Atta, who's the Tajik sort of ally slash rival to Dostum, but was eventually persuaded to be a 100% ally, at least up until capture of Masri Sharif. And CIA Team Bravo, which was three men who were commanded by a member of Team Alpha, Scott Spellmeyer. They're all principally on horseback. Occasionally, there's a vehicle here and there. There were some Green Berets, the battalion elements of the Green Berets that came in in early November that brought in some sort of gators, they were called, like little ATVs. But principally, they're getting around on horseback. And these are sort of scrawny, mean Afghan horses that fight with each other. And the saddles are bits of two by four sort of nailed together with a carpet laid over them. And Americans, these guys were bigger than most Afghans. And it was extraordinarily uncomfortable. And David Tyson, to this day, will talk about this 14-hour horse ride he had, which was just sort of some of the most miserable sort of hours of his life, sitting on this horse, munitions exploding, you're not knowing where you're going, you're in fear of your life, principally by being thrown off the horse and tumbling down a mountainside. If you want to urinate, you just do it in place, just like the helicopter pilots, you know, in the Night Stalkers. Because just the effort of stopping everybody getting off the horse, getting back, it's just not worth it. So it was pretty miserable stuff. But yes, so they were lured into a trap. So Masri Sharif falls on November the 10th. And there's this sense in Washington. I mean, we forget because there was talk of why is this taking so long? Quagmires, another Vietnam. Well, you know, maybe it didn't turn into another Vietnam, but it didn't, not in 2001. So there's a lot of kind of doom and gloom in sort of late October, early November in Washington, and there's a very pessimistic Defense Intelligence Agency summary that Rumsfeld was pushing around that said, you know, we're going to be bogged down through the winter and in the spring. But then the first domino topples, which is Masri Sharif. And in Washington, there's a sort of sense of, in Masri Sharif, it's all over, that Taliban's regime's days are numbered, which was correct. And attention swiftly kind of shifted to 100 miles to the east, to the city of Kunduz, and that was kind of being set up. Taliban had massed their forces there, and it appeared that that was going to be a bloody battle, and that was going to be the Taliban's last stand. So the Taliban commander in the north was a guy called Mullah Mohammed Fazl, was also the Taliban's deputy defense minister. He is again today the Taliban's deputy defense minister, and he was notorious for massacring Hazaras in the north. He had a lot of blood on his hands as well. And he negotiates a surrender with Dostum because it seems pretty clear that the Taliban are going to be defeated. And so it's all about how you avoid bloodshed. And from the point of view of Dostum and the other leaders, they're shifting their focus from sort of prosecuting the war when it was very kind of simple to what's going to be their position in the new Afghanistan. And so, you know, you had a conference in Bonn going on in late November, early December, announced the new Afghan government, and everybody's kind of jockeying for position to be part of it. And so in these negotiations for the surrender in Kunduz, of, which was of Taliban, but also Al-Qaeda forces, so you had a number of hundreds, at least, of foreign non-Afghan Al-Qaeda forces, you know, Brigade 066, Ansar, different names for it. So Fazl goes to a place called Kalajangi, which was the 19th century huge mud fort, which became the scene of battle and of Mike Spann's death on November 25th onwards. 
Which roughly translates as the fort of war. Is that right? That's right. Yes, that's right. Fort of war. And you built in the 1880s, been used by the Soviets, by Dostum, by the Taliban. And then after the fall of Masri Sharif, it became an American base. And then the Americans moved into the city into building the Turkish school, which became their new base. But Mullah Fazl and Mullah Nouri, who's also back in the Taliban government, both of these spent a dozen years at Guantanamo Bay, subsequently, by the way. They negotiate with this surrender with Dostum. And Fazl, who, as well as being extremely evil, was a very clever man. And his pitch to Dostum is murky to this day exactly what the deal was. But it's like, listen, if you want to be part of this new Afghanistan, you don't want to be somebody who's renowned for making the streets of Kunduz run with blood. So bloodshed's not in your interest. It's not in our interest because it's our people whose blood it will be. So we can do a deal here. We don't need to have thousands and thousands of people killed. So the negotiations go on sort of late into the night. The Americans are there. So J.R. Seeger is there. Mark Nooch, who's the captain commanding ODA-59, is there. They're sort of in the wings. It's an Afghan deal. And there's an arrangement for a surrender to take place days later at Urganak, which was a village sort of settlement to the west of Kunduz. There's also money involved. So the Taliban gives Dostum several million dollars, unbeknown to the CIA at the time. And the line in the sand for the Americans is, per Afghan tradition, the foot soldiers, the Afghans, the Pakistanis can sort of melt away. But no Al-Qaeda, you know, we're not letting any Al-Qaeda go. Exactly whether that had been properly resolved remains unknown to this day. But fast forward to November 24th, 400 foreign fighters turn up on the eastern edge of Masri Sharif. So they've traveled 100 miles, no Afghans among them. There's an American there, John Walker Lind, California, who subsequently became known as the American Taliban. But this was an Al-Qaeda force. And there's every Muslim country and some non-Muslim countries represented in this group. And David Tyson was there and he was just like, this is just incredible. There's every ethnicity and language that I can imagine represented in this place. And he called it the smorgasbord of Al-Qaeda. But... What was happening that we now know pretty much beyond doubt is that this was a Trojan horse strategy. So on the 24th, the bulk of American forces move east to Kunduz, including J.R. Seeger and Scott Spellmeyer from Team Alpha. Team Alpha was split up, so you had others who were at Polycumry, Kayan, who were working with tribes to sort of block the Taliban retreat routes from Al-Qaeda to prevent them getting south to Kabul and, and Kandahar. So, you know, everybody's very, very stretched on the ground. So the concept from Faisal was very simple. It's to get these 400 diehard foreign fighters behind enemy lines into Northern Alliance slash American held territory. And while the sort of skeleton force is left back in Masri Sharif, you kind of get behind them and you rise up and potentially massacre Americans in the Turkish school in Masri Sharif and retake control of Masri Sharif. And that's what they tried to do. So there were indications that something was wrong. That evening it takes many hours to actually agree the terms of surrender. And again, some of these fighters believed that they were going to be allowed free passage into Iran. Some thought they were going to be allowed to go to Kandahar. Others believed that they were going to die. And certainly an element of them were ready to rise up and be this Trojan horse. The sun is going down. 
they're taken to Kalajangi, which is the logical place for them to be. Fazl expected, and I think had negotiated that they would be held at the airport, which would not have been a secure location. So that's maybe where it starts to go wrong for him. But they're taken to Kalajangi, and as they're being unloaded from the trucks, there's an explosion and there's a suicide grenade goes off, takes out two of Dostum's men, two of his commanders, one of whom looked, and I've seen the footage of the aftermath, and you can see the guy dead, covered in blood. He looks extremely like Dostum, moustache, Asiatic features. And so the assumption is that this suicide bomber thought he was taking out Dostum. Chaotic scene, and a number of Team Alpha members arrive just as this is happening. So David Tyson, Mike Spann, and Justin Sapp just arrive there. The prisoners are being sort of bundled by Dostum's men into the cellar of a building called the Pink House, which was a Soviet-built schoolhouse in the southern half of the fort. The fort's divided by a central wall with a gateway in the middle. And that night, there were more explosions. There was clearly disputes going on between the prisoners. So the next morning, there's some dead bodies down there. There's some people with some bad wounds. And Dostum's Uzbek intelligence officers and Basically, the people there, along with David Tyson, who will be able to speak to all of the prisoners. They're bringing the prisoners out from the cellar in ones and twos and lining them up in the southern compound, sort of on this field, dusty, sort of yellow, parched grass field. And there's video footage of this that was shot by one of Dustin's men, which was an incredible resource for me in piecing all this together. And David Tyson and Mike Spann arrive, protected only by... Dostum's men, so no other Americans, because horses are thin on the ground. That also had been an order from Task Force Dagger, which was the command organization at K2, that Green Berets should not go into the fort on November 25th because of the suicide explosion on the 24th. The CIA didn't know this, so you've got diverging missions and things are getting more complicated. And so, you know, like all these things with hindsight, you look at would things have been different if the CIA had known about order? Would it have been different if Green Berets had accompanied them? All these sort of ifs and buts. I mean, Justin Sapp had to deliver a vehicle that day. He was supposed to be going in with David Tyson and Mike Spann. If Justin had been there, I've had this conversation with him, you know, would he have been killed as well? Or would the whole course of the uprising have been different? And we'll never know. So Mike and David sort of set about questioning these prisoners who are lined up. And it's sort of overwhelming. It also becomes clear that the prisoners had not been searched properly. So when they were taken from the surrender site into the fort, the Northern Alliance, there was kind of two elements to it. One was a sort of Afghan code of honor in surrender, where you just put down your weapons or keep your weapons and go away. You're not disarmed. Trouble is, these were not Afghans. They were Al-Qaeda. And I think the other element is that these Northern Alliance fighters were terrified of these Arab fighters in particular. You know, they had sort of Superman reputation and they didn't want to go anywhere near them. So it's kind of disarm me if you dare. Yes. And most of them were not disarmed. And so inside the pink house, as the prisoners being brought up the stairs, they are being searched. And there's a pile of weapons. There's like machine guns, Kalashnikovs, grenades, knuckle dusters, you know, almost everything you can imagine. And at one point, David Tyson goes into the pink house and sees this and is just kind of astonished. And Amanullah, who was one of Dostum's intelligence officers, who was killed in the opening moments of the uprising, it's not safe here. You need to get out. And so 
400 prisoners, the vast bulk of them, between sort of a dozen and two dozen, are left in the cellar. It's around about 11 o'clock in the morning on November the 25th. And David is thinking about, well, you know, we need to wrap this up, report back to Hank Crumpton at headquarters and say, like, we need to get interrogators in, we need to have a holding facility. We've done a bit of a sift and we know that they're overwhelmingly Al-Qaeda. There seem to be some very serious people here. There are people who have talked about training in toxins and chemicals. There are people who've been in Al-Farouk camp, people who've met Bin Laden. And so we need to sort of separate these out and do proper interrogations. But before they wrap up, David speaks to Syed Kamal, who was one of Dostum's intelligence commanders, another one. He's an ethnic Uzbek. Amanla was an ethnic Tajik. And Kamal says, it's a hardcore in there. You know, I think they're Uzbeks. I think these are the real guys. And just after that, you know, Mike Spann is close to the pink house. He's with a couple of medics, doctors who've been brought in to treat the prisoners who have battle wounds, but also the wounds caused overnight. And so there's a little aid station being set up very close to the pink house. And Mike, you can see it on the video. It's eerie how Mike sort of turns around and walks over towards this aid station. And David is some distance away, 100 yards or so away from the pink house. And on the video, which was shot by one of Dostum's guys, it just cuts at the point at which you see an Uzbek prisoner coming out and you hear some shouts from the pink house and just a sort of muffled explosion and the prisoner kind of wheels around and then it cuts. And so at that moment, basically the guards inside the pink house were disarmed, killed, and the prisoners who remain in the basement sort of come rushing out with weapons. Mike Spann had a Kalashnikov on his back, swings round, kills a couple of them as they're running towards him. But you have all these prisoners lined up in the southern compounds who are sort of kneeling with their hands, well, their upper arms, like sort of chicken-winged was the sort of term. They're tied together by their turbans. So pretty loose. And, you know, some of them have been working these turbans loose, and so as Mike is sort of facing the prisoners who are rushing towards him, other prisoners are sort of leaping up and jumping at him from the back. And so he's sort of overwhelmed. He pulls out his pistol, takes another couple of shots and sort of disappears under a sort of a pile of bodies. David Tyson is watching this and he immediately goes into a sort of combat stress, psychological shock. You know, time is slowing down. He's lost his hearing. Everything, he said to me, it was like thinking a novel a second. His mind is racing, but even though he's lost most of his hearing, because like all his senses are focused kind of on survival and what is absolutely essential in the moment. But one thing that does come through is Mike shouting, Dave, Dave, Dave. And so David pulls out his Browning pistol, didn't have a rifle that day. There's an Afghan prisoner coming towards him, shooting a Russian Makarov pistol. And David can still remember looking at this guy who was shooting like sideways, sort of like gangster style and looked kind of weird and it wasn't being very effective, but David could see the rounds being ejected. And so he shoots him twice and carries on towards Mike. And there's this sort of writhing pile of bodies. David, he shoots the four guys who are on top of Mike, you know, and he shoots each of them twice, like one, two, three, four, four, three, two, one. And then complete bedlam going on. Most of the Afghan guards have fled and David's just transported sort of into another realm. He kicks Mike to see if there's any sort of sign of life. There's no response. There's blood on the ground. 
And so David grabs Mike's Kalashnikov and shoots his way out. I mean, he's got prisoners flinging themselves at him, some still with their arms tied. There's one guy that David remembered as being Indonesian, you know, wild hair, and I've seen him on the video, who's headbutting David from behind. And David just shoots him in the head, you know. And there are grenades bouncing off David that don't explode. He's shooting people at very close quarters. He shot 75 rounds from his pistol. So he changed magazines repeatedly and cannot remember doing so. He changed magazines on Mike's Kalashnikov and used another Kalashnikov that he had picked up. And one of the incredible things about this is that David was a case officer. He'd done a pistol training course five years earlier. He'd had a quick refresher on the rifle from Justin Sapp in Tashkent on the way in, sort of days before he got into Afghanistan. And so he's not a SEAL or Delta Force, or he's not an elite warrior by any stretch. I mean, he's served a couple of stints in the army, you know, artilleryman, intelligence officer. But when the moment came, he clearly paid attention in his training, which this is a lesson there. But, you know, I also just think you can never predict, and most of us, thankfully, will not be tested in this way, but you can never predict how you'll respond, whether you'll freeze, whether you'll run, whether you'll just screw up, you won't be able to operate. And so whatever it was, you know, the sort of intestinal fortitude. Anyway, David was able to function. Obviously, there was a lot of luck involved as well because somebody could have shot him in the back of the head at any point in this. But he functioned and he killed a lot of people, but he got out of there. And so he was able to run through the gates and central wall and reached relative safety, which was the headquarters building, which was a sort of a collection of offices on the northern side of the fort. And there's a German TV crew there, which is actually one of the main impetuses for the book when I first saw that footage of David like running across the northern compound with a Kalashnikov in one hand and his Browning pistol in the other. And he's dressed in this Afghan kind of robe, but sort of American boots, and he's sort of an amalgam of Afghan and American. And so he gets into the headquarters building. There's sort of a bunch of Afghans there, Red Cross workers, German TV crew. There's a Reuters crew, mainly Russians. And David, he has these staring eyes, you can see in the video from the day of a thousand yard stare. And he immediately has to sort of raise the alarm. He manages to call his wife in Tashkent, who <laughs> drops the phone and, you know, then picks it up. And she thought he was calling to wish her a happy Thanksgiving, you know, a couple of days late. And she's immediately realizes he's in mortal peril. And so she notes it down. She never heard of Kala Jangi. So she wrote down, I think it was something like Kuala Jangi, as in Kuala Bear, and calls the station chief of Charlie, you know, he needs to get in there. And so everything is suddenly kind of scrambled. Word gets back to the Turkish school. And there's a 15-man rescue force that's sort of put together, which is British SBS, Green Berets, there's a Navy SEAL there, CIA medic called Glenn. So anyone and everyone that's available is now brought together to try and get them out of there. Yes, that's right. You know, you've got two things going on, and there was sort of friction between the two things. One is to get Mike Span out. So you're not certain he's dead. It seems he's probably dead, but get him out or at least recover his body but also stop the prisoners breaking out of Kalajangi. You've got hundreds of former Al-Qaeda serving current Al-Qaeda that are on the run. Yeah, with, I don't know, two or three dozen Americans in the Turkish school. So you have these two kind of missions, and it takes six days for the Afghans with the Americans in the wings to regain control of that fort, recover Mike Spann's body. And at the end of it, there are 86 of these Al-Qaeda fighters 
who have retreated back into the cellar because it was a sort of fortified bunker and munitions have been stored there. And they've been pounded by JDAMs, AC-130s. There's been diesel oil poured down there, attempts to sort of set it alight, which is difficult with diesel. And in the end, their freezing water is diverted into the cellar. And so and I've been down there. It's a kind of a ghastly place where many, many people died. You know, you have bodies floating and the wounded and obviously feces and blood and all sorts of stuff in this sort of fetid water. You know, it's early December, it's pretty cold. And so eventually they come out and there's a surrender. But I mean, during the battle, you had 2,000 pound JDAM, which was dropped on the wrong position by an F-18 pilot stake that killed a bunch of Afghan allies, wounded Americans and Brits. And it was brutal fighting, which, you know, we don't know how many prisoners got out. Some of them got out and were kind of killed by villagers and stuff. Some of them probably made it back to Uzbekistan. Presumably, you know, Uzbeks would be much more able to sort of operate and speak the language and get out. But, you know, 200 plus were killed and their bodies littered the southern half of the fort. So it was quite a story. And a number of things that happened in this period, you know, there's the success of this small number of Americans and some British helping the Northern Alliance topple the Taliban. In a way, that formula, it was I think it led to the bit of, whether you call it the can-do spirit of Americans or arrogance or hubris, but there was a sort of sense from the policymakers, well, that was pretty easy, wasn't it? So we can go for broke now. We can expand the mission. We can build this democratic nation in Afghanistan and we can change a regime in Iraq and we're the world's only superpower. We can do anything. So it's sort of tragic, really, that I think that early success, limited success, but, you know, with very small numbers of Americans sort of led to this 20 year mission, you know, mission creep and a mission that ended in defeat 20 years later. But also, I think unreliable allies, treachery, fake surrenders, friendly fire incidents, these were all kind of indications of the complexity of Afghanistan, which in the moment, you know, I remember it vividly, there was this sense of America, we're going to lean forward, we're going to connect the dots, we're going to take the fight to the enemy. You know, we're not going to sit back and wait, we can do it. This was kind of like a pivot point, you know. Another element was that the Taliban, Hamid Karzai, who was the chosen leader, Pashtun, you know, family from the south, he wanted to incorporate the Taliban, you know, the sort of rump of the Taliban in the Bonn peace talks and in the new Afghan government. And Rumsfeld and the Pentagon, the Bush administration more broadly, were like, no way, you know, with us or against us, they're defeated, we're going to sort of cast them out into the wilderness. And, you know, that was not the Afghan way. And so we refused to do any sort of negotiating with them in 2001, which, you know, in some ways was understandable. And certainly a lot of Afghans like Dostum would have had a lot to say about negotiating with the Taliban and bringing them in to government in any form. But, you know, instead of negotiating from a position of extreme strength, essentially surrendered to them, you know, in, in the Doha talks and said, well, you know, you can have it back. So, you know, lots of lessons and lots of ironies and, you know, lots of tragedy about this whole story, I feel. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and giving us this incredible preamble to America's longest war, one that we've only just seen come to an end. Toby, tell us where can people read more about this chapter of history? So the book is First Casualty, 
the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 9-11. It was published by Little Brown in the US, by Welbeck in the UK. There's a paperback edition due out, I believe, next month in the UK and in September in the US. And I'm on Twitter, Toby Harnden. I end up with 5,000 pictures from this period, which I'm sort of putting out on Instagram. So Toby Harnden won the number one on Instagram. And so I'm trying hard to be pretty much out there with this. So if you Google First Casualty and Toby, I'm pretty sure you'll find the book. Well, it's had incredible reviews and we're certainly going to get you back on the podcast. If anything else, we just need to hear more about all of these interviews you've undertaken because the sources and the access, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and it truly is unparalleled, the people that you've been able to speak to from across the spectrum of this story. So I urge people to go out there and to buy this book. Toby, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, James. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.